Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Monday, July 20th in the year 2020. Okay, 7 2020. Okay. 7 2020. Yes, so that third voice you heard is Sadie Abuhoff. We're in Brock, Block Island. That's right. Sadie's joining us for vacation this week in Block Island. Where we have gone for, uh, you were counting the years, Sadie. Before. Let's not. Let's not. It's many, many years. Yeah. And so it's our family vacation where yeah. we uh, gather and regroup and get away from the world. And of course, COVID has followed us here. Yeah. So, not uh, literally. Not literally. We haven't taken it with us. No. Well, That's no. Right. But the restrictions yes. are, are in place. Rhode Island has been very careful about uh, trying to control the right. spread. But things are surprisingly Block Island-like. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's not 100%, but it's pretty much like it's always been. Isn't that yeah. right? Yeah, we don't do a lot of stuff where you have to go inside and interact with people. So that keeps it pretty normal for us. And even outside at the beach, people, groups were close together, but but kept their distance from other groups very clearly. Right. Uh, so anyway, and there's outdoor dining, and uh, so it's it's very nice. It's a super. It was a hot day, incredibly hot day, but not in Block Island, but uh, reasonably hot in Block Island. But we had a great day. So speaking of coronavirus, yeah, uh, you, you remember a a month ago or so we were talking about one way uh, they are able to ascertain. Uh, COVID infections in a location is by analyzing the poop. Yeah, well, the right? waste, the wastewater, the wastewater uh, of an area. Be. Right. Okay. So this week I uh, noticed that um, they had a story about Yosemite yeah. Park. All right, mm-hmm. Yosemite, and uh, there have been no reported cases in Yosemite, and yet they have been sending in as a national park. They're sending in their wastewater samples, mm-hmm. apparently all the way to some company in Massachusetts, and it was analyzed, and it seemed to give data that showed at least somewhere around 170 infections. 170? 170 cases. Well, that's a lot. In Seems Yosemite. like a lot. Um, so Yosemite is already following guidelines, yeah. and they think it's people coming from other oh, places. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what Yosemite is about, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, but that tells you how crucial, you know, these crucial clues that analysis of wastewater is giving that uh, people aren't getting by standing in line for testing, et cetera. Well, yeah. I mean, and you told me also there was an article in the Block Island paper. We get to Block Island, yeah, and in the, the little Block Island paper, there's an article about, uh, there's been an analysis of Block Island's wastewater. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, no reported cases, and yet the wastewater seems to indicate somewhere in the uh, the realm of about 10 cases right. on the island. Well, yeah, and, uh, yeah, so I guess that indicates something. First of all, it's kind of amazing they can put a number on what the cases are. I mean, you don't know how they do that. It has to be by volume or something. It's scientific stuff. Yes, you're right. And uh, I guess uh, that's a word of caution because I think, they're not doing anything because of that in particular. I guess they're just being more vigilant. But uh, No, I think what it is is a, is a word of, I think it's great news. Yeah. I think this is another tool yeah. perhaps underutilized 
to that's giving good information about what's going on and it's in an these different locales. And it's inevitable. It's a and destination that some people are coming here with the virus. Because the, we, you said the other day you knew people who got antibody tests who tested positive. And so that's another example of, you know, it's popping up in places where it's not necessarily being tested and not being to begin with. Right. And even if happening. you get tested, yeah. and people in our family have been tested uh, more than a week ago, yeah. two weeks ago, still haven't gotten any results. Well, uh, so it, it, it's not that. But the wastewater, look, I think you're right. The wastewater stuff is effective. The fact that 10 people on Block Island or they had waste that indicated that there were 10 people on Block Island which had co who had COVID can't be shocking because people are coming from all over, like they're coming to Yosemite. And I guess 10 people is a number that they're saying, okay, we'll just keep our eyes open. If it was 100 people, well, 1,500 people, they'd be reacting differently. I'm not sure exactly what you do with the information. I don't think you can trace the people well, from their poop. No, you can't trace the people okay. from their poop. But um, it does give you a fuller picture of yeah. what's going on in any yeah, locale. Right. Well, I think, I, I don't know. I just said Without depending on people going for individual testing. Yeah, you're right. And it works. Uh, <laughs> so that I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Okay, But speaking of coronavirus. Yeah, there was an article about... Uh, uh, dealing with coronavirus, well, not coronavirus, dealing with the Spanish flu in 1918, in particular about what they did about theaters. Uh, and uh, now, of course, theaters are closed for the coronavirus in, in present times. But in 1918, uh, not so much, uh, right, Sane? Well, particularly in New York. New York did not close its theaters. But it sounds like New York didn't do too much in terms of putting restrictions in place in general mm -hmm. because the health, the commissioner of health, I don't know what the right title is, was just not that interested in putting too much restrictions on people. So they kept the theaters open and felt that it was a necessary relief for people to be able to get some entertainment. And they made the point in the article that at this point in time, theaters was kind of the main point of entertainment. There weren't obviously TVs or movies happening at that point, so theater was kind of the thing. Yeah, I and mean, it's the article, I guess, at least the way I read it, although I haven't read it for a few days, you just looked at it, seemed kind of inconclusive uh, as to whether that was a mistake on the part of New York to keep the theaters open, or whether it was wise to keep the theaters open on the theory that uh, they wanted people to have as normal life as they possibly could. Uh, I mean, did you get draw the same conclusion, or did you feel it was more negative? They, so they thought, I think they thought it was kind of inconclusive, but they did look at the large number of New York infections, and they said maybe that would have been lower if they put in some more restrictions. But there were some restrictions. They told people who were visibly, like, sneezing or coughing to leave, mm -hmm. and they said that the flu was different in that it wasn't something that could invisibly live inside you and you're transmitting it. It's like if you had the flu, you had the flu, and you knew you had the flu. Mm -hmm. So you weren't going out to the theater, and if you were, people were like, oh, my goodness, you look sick, go away. Yeah. Um, but then they did say that they asked a couple current-day people for comments from, like, the Broadway um, shows today, whoever, like, the actors um, union or whatever, and they had said, they basically said, that seems ridiculous and, like, we made our decision very quickly to close the theaters and we're not going to put anyone in danger. Yeah, so uh, I think more than anything, it shows the difference in attitude. I mean, uh, and you're right. It's hard to draw too many conclusions because the coronavirus was not the same as the Spanish flu. In fact, I think the Spanish flu 
sort of came into New York very quickly and was had a, a significant impact, but also left quickly. It felt like it was there for three months or something like that. And then they did say by gone. Christmas, which I don't know when it started, but they September. said by Christmas, September to they Christmas. were everything was like totally back in right. business, and they're recouping all and, of their. And it's hard to know whether well, that's because they let things take their course, or I don't know, can't tell. Right, but you don't know. You don't know. That's the thing. Yeah, but yeah, but uh, it was it was just it handled entirely differently. You know, but what is it? What is a, a comparison that's worth making? Although again, you can't draw conclusions right or wrong. Is that there? I'm sure they didn't know everything about the Spanish flu at the time, and yet the approach taken by the authorities was, uh, let's just take a look, let's keep our eye out for people who look sick, and otherwise we'll manage it, uh, contrasting with the approach being taken now. Uh, again, can't draw conclusions as to whether what's wise and what's not wise, but I mean, the, the times were just different, and they handled it differently. It's 100 years ago. Yeah, but yeah. they did say that years. they felt there was a different um, feeling because it was basically a wartime so there was kind of a a real um, feeling of collective about we need to band together to fight this war. And then it was like, okay, we need to band together to fight this pandemic. So they said that people felt kind of obligated to do the right thing for their nation because of other events as well. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. And maybe that uh, plays into how much uh, rhetoric uh, we have with this pandemic. People saying it's war, we're fighting a war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, well, anyway, it's just uh, it, it was just I, I was just shocked when I when I heard that the theater stayed open during uh, 1918. Um, they did say they closed some small theaters. Yes, they closed the small theaters. Yeah, closed those the, small theaters. They kept now. the big ones open. <laughs> I don't know. All right. So, in any event, so we also were talking about the fact that there was an article in, in the Times about Hamilton streaming. We talked about Hamilton streaming a couple of weeks ago, but the Times had a really long piece in which they brought different critics into the room, or perhaps virtually into the room, to discuss their various impressions of Hamilton's uh, streaming and comparing it to the, uh, the live theater experience. And uh, it was different. I mean, I felt it was different. Uh, it was different in live versus streaming. Don't you think so? Well, they, their main point, I think, was that some of the... Well, they had a few different kind of sections on it, but they talked a lot about how some of the... Um, actors resonated more on the screen than they did in the theater and vice versa. And um, they felt that it was more, uh, you could pick up more detail with the camera being closer to the actors and seeing everything that was happening. And then also you had the benefit of being able to rewind it if you missed some of the crazy lyrics and you wanted to hear them again. um, Because they did find it very overwhelming in the theater and they said that this could be theoretically more accessible if you wanted to spend the time to rewind and rewatch. But I really agreed, and I read the article, but I forget who mentioned this first. Leslie Odom Jr. is entirely different in the streaming version. You know, um, he made such a different impact on me in the theater, and especially that one song that I mentioned in the other podcast, I Want to Be in the Room Where It Happens. I mean, he looks like a different person. He just has an entirely different personality in the streaming version with the close-ups. There wasn't that electricity that he develops in the theater that was so um, engaging. So their point was that Hamilton and uh, Burr kind of flipped in terms of like in the theater, Burr resonates more. And then on the film Hamilton does, Hamilton's more of a screen actor or Lin-Manuel is more of a screen actor. 
but I felt like George Washington got more of a um, boost from the um, movie version of it. The streaming version? Yeah. Uh-huh. Because the, the song that he does, and I saw an interview with the Hamilton cast, and one of the Schuyler sisters was like, yeah, like the Washington song was the big song. Well, and the streaming version, and it that's wasn't... That's interesting. It wasn't in the live version. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, well, yes, I see that, It but... was the One Last Time song, I think. Yeah, One Last Time. One Last Time, I, I actually thought it was great live. Um, so, I don't know. I, I do think that uh, the quieter aspects of it and the more quietly sung aspects of it were brought out more to the forefront in the streaming version, in the way the television amplifies for you, focuses for you, close-ups for you. So, and I think the article made that point that there was the women characters were in a sense more prominent because they were drawn out uh, mm-hmm. by the camera in a way that they weren't uh, in terms of the live performance. And maybe that's true even with George Washington. And I think that's part of what's going on with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, he's not a great singer. Somebody even says in the article yeah, that he's a terrible that was, singer. That was one I of my think. favorite points is because I don't think he's a great singer because mm. he raps most of the time and then he sings a little bit. Right. And he hits some bad notes. Right. And he, I know he hits some bad notes on the soundtrack and live. I think I thought they were a little bit better on the, the streaming version than he did in the mm. soundtrack. But I, I'm surprised how, how much faith he puts in his own singing. But anyway, um, one of the other comments that I thought was interesting is that they don't I think it's just a comment on how he wrote the musical, but they don't spend much time with the other two Skylar sisters once he marries um, the one. And I've seen him in interviews talk about this, and he's like, there's really just not anything else to say about that. (laughs) And they do a little bit more about the one who, like, outlives him and, like, helps Eliza with the foundation and all that, Angelica. But the other one dies pretty early, and then she's the actress that turns into the the love interest later on yeah. well this is crafting an entertainment yeah. a story they it's had... not a history report right that's meant to be you know yeah. but also uh-huh. like if they had just looked that up they would have known there was nothing else to say about it well yeah. you know but i thought it was perfectly legitimate and you well described it uh but you had the complaint by one of the people in the Times saying gee are, are the women getting the shaft well the truth is alexander Hamilton's kind of the focus of it so uh, that's the main story yeah and more talk about uh, Jonathan Groff. Is it Groff or Goff? Groff? Groff. Groff. His spittle. Spit. Yeah, he's... He, he's <laughs> well, the, the close-ups on, on Groff were not But they uh, just say rewarding. that he, he's a wet actor. He spits a lot in general. Now we know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, again, I found him much more uh, entertaining and engaging on stage yeah. than... Uh, I didn't go for his, his streaming personality. Yeah, I mean, I never saw different. him because I saw... Um, Brian Darcy James, but I will say if you've ever sat, sat in the first three rows of a theater, which I have done for the infamous Jekyll and Hyde production, yes. <laughs> you can literally see the actor spitting. Oh, really? So it's not like like you can see the spit flying through the air. Yeah. So it's not it's something that's unique to him at all. Oh, so right. that was that was eighth grade Cranberry, wasn't it? Yeah. On, yeah. How, on Broadway. That was on Broadway. I know, but how was it? Well, it was a long time ago. It was awful. But um, again, spit flying through the air. Mm, Not sure you want to be sitting in front of that during this time. All right. Well, you you got excited because you saw an article about uh, Valley Forge uh, Theater. Well, I saw a reminiscence 
by the theater critic Jesse Green, not always my favorite right. theater critic uh, from the New York Times. But he tells a kind of a wonderful story of being abducted by his friends when he's 17 years old, mm -hmm. his birthday, for his birthday. And uh, they they take him, they kind of kidnap him and take him to where? Valley, for, Valley, Valley Forge Forms. Music Theater to see Angela Lansbury in a production of Gypsy. And uh, he goes on to say what a fantastic experience it was. Well, this all resonates with me because, uh, of course, I grew up going to the Shady Grove Music Fair. Uh, in uh, suburban Maryland. And uh, so Valley Forge was, of course, in, you know, outside of Philadelphia, right? Mm -hmm. And it was part of a chain of music theaters in tents owned by Lee Goober and Shelley Gross. And uh, there was also one Westbury Music Fair in your hometown. Exactly. Right? So it's the same exact idea. So there we grew up being able to go to these productions right you know uh most of them they were in the summertime so what did I mean, you, it was literally so, a tent so, so what did you see at shady grove i i saw a bunch of stuff i saw my fair lady which blew me away but do you remember who was in it um no okay. absolutely not yeah. but i could ask my mom all right uh i actually saw you they also had musical acts i saw john sebastian there oh well, that's something more, well that's yeah. that's not a small thing and uh I, I saw um yeah. carousel there i think yeah uh, so and all with big time what? Uh, people, not at the height of their fame. Well, you know, but uh, it, it was um, you know, and Jesse Green mentions that tickets at the time he went to this production were like nine dollars. Well, that, okay? that, it's not like nine dollars was you know a zillion dollars. Um, people, kids could take their friends when they're seventeen years old. I bought the tickets for John Sebastian for me and Martha Ann to go. So it was a more accessible theater experience. But he makes the point that Angela Lansbury got a lot of money for doing this. The question is, what's Angela Lansbury doing out there in Valley Forge? And he says in the article she got $200,000 to make this circuit of these various tent productions. That's a lot of $9 tickets. Uh, and he does refer to the fact that, uh, you know, folks like uh, Zero Mostel, went out to Westbury. I can tell you with that. That was Fiddler on the Roof. Um, I didn't see him. But uh, I saw I saw Phil Silvers in Top Banana. I saw uh, your favorite, Sadie, uh, Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, so who did I see in Bye Bye Birdie? Of course, we didn't have Dick Van Dyke. It was Ken Berry, who was a lesser talent, or lesser name. Uh, but you know who was in it? Paul Lind was in it, who played the uh, father of the family oh, that sang that. the Ed Sullivan song. Did he and, play? He played the same part? Yeah, yeah. That's the only part he could play. And then, <laughs> and then there was a, um, and you're talking about acts. I saw the doors out there in, uh, in Westbury Music Fair. So it was the same idea. So it was, uh, great stuff. It was a way for suburbanites yeah. to go to the theater yeah. without having to go downtown. Right. Uh, whether you're in Washington, Baltimore, New York. Mm -hmm. And, uh, most of those places are gone now. Uh, Westbury does, you know, has some kind of shows at it. Uh, owned by a yeah, it's more oldie shows. Yeah. You know, um, it would be like uh, the 19th iteration of the Four Tops. But that was a nice memory. Yeah, uh, you go out and no. really, uh, I can't tell you how beautiful the Ascot was in the My, My Fair, Fair Lady. Lady. You know what? Maybe we should look it up. Figure out who it was. I bet it was it was some real talent because they they got some good people on these shows. Probably, and then another uh, 
nice article, again, we're spending a lot of time on theater today, was by Carolyn Coster in the New York Times, A Corporate Picnic with the Power to Heal. And Carolyn Coster is a lawyer with Cantor Fitzgerald, and she talks about how Cantor Fitzgerald lost many people. Yeah. In 9-11, they had an office uh, in the World Trade Center. In the World Trade Center, yeah. and uh, she talks about how for a few years there were no corporate outings, and then uh, slowly um, they began to. A, cu- a couple of lawyers went to a production at the Delacorte Theater mm-hmm. of Shakespeare in the Park, and. The next year, they invited their staffs, and one thing led to another, till at a certain point, Cantor Fitzgerald is taking a whole like boatload of people uh, to these in-the-park productions. And she talks about the boxed lunch uh, kind of uh, dinners uh, and, right. um, you know, what fun it was. She and her husband would mix drinks, yeah. uh, you know, even though it was not quite legal in the park. Not quite uh, kosher, right. Right, not quite kosher. And it really served as a, you know, a bonding experience. And uh, to the extent where it became such a big thing, they began to allow plus ones. So you could bring somebody right. and uh, people would bring their children. And if by the time the theater production was going on, um, not all the tickets had been handed out. You know, some people bail on these things. Uh, she would go outside and hand out the tickets to people waiting around, looking like they yeah. might like to go. Well, those those tickets, they had two ways to sell them. They had the they would take huge donations from uh, places like Cantor Fitzgerald and my law firm did the same thing, and they would get a raft of tickets that way. Otherwise, they were free. And free meant you stood online for hours and hours and hours. Right. The way to get in, those are the people who get the tickets. And of course, through my firm, you and I got the opportunity to go through, go to several of those productions. And we now had... I got to say that was in like the eighties and nineties. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I can yeah. tell you the best one we saw right off the top of my head uh-huh. was the Pirates of Penzance. That's true. With yeah. The Linda Ronstadt and Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein. That does go to Broadway. Yeah. But I'm sure it wasn't half as enchanting. You're sitting in. The park, yeah, in an amphitheater under the stars, right. and at a certain point, the moon may rise over that lake in front of the Belvedere Castle. Right. It, it's magical. Yeah. It's magical. Although one of them we went to, I was tremendously pregnant with Zeke, and it was hot, and it was hot, yeah. and I just sat there the whole time thinking, "This has got to end. Right. This has got to end. It, this has got to end." Was a, anyway, Coster has a very nice reminiscent of uh, going to these kinds of things. and And Hoping to go again, basically. uh, She said, uh, then the lights would flood the set at the theater in Central Park where this Kentucky girl always felt like a New Yorker and where a New York company came to feel a little more whole. And uh, so we are missing some of those kind of in-person, together group experiences well, that takes us to sports, of course, which is, uh, of course, uh, makes a, it's important. It's important. Uh, and the question is what's coming back and how it's coming back. And uh, I'm going to ask Sadie in a, a question in a second about hockey. I mean, uh, Sadie knows hockey much better than I do it, right? Now I keep hearing about basketball. 
and basketball's in the bubble in Orlando. And whether that works out or not, we're going to see. Uh, there was an article in the Times by a fellow who says that all he knows now he's going to try to keep his the key fob he gets for covering this in the bubble, which has a picture, a two-sided, one side Mickey Mouse, the other Jerry West, the great basketball legend. So he thinks that will be something he'll get out of the experience. But otherwise, he's in lockdown with all these other NBA players. You can't imagine that this bubble is not going to burst, but we shall see. Major League Baseball, we were talking earlier, they've started the exhibition games. The games start for real on Thursday or Friday. And I got the chance to listen to five minutes of an exhibition game two days ago with no fans in the stands, and it was boring. It was dull. And I don't know, maybe when it's not exhibition, it will be entirely different. People say they're excited about it. I'll give it a chance. But I'm skeptical. But say, well, Here's my theory. What? It is dull. <laughs> and so you you were, you know, caught up in your addiction. Yeah to baseball yeah. and you couldn't see straight. Yes. I've always known. I mean, I listen to these games unspeakably dull. You've gone through withdrawal. withdrawal Take okay? advantage of it. Yeah. And uh, you now uh, are no longer addicted. I mean, what I'm wondering is like, it's one thing to watch it on TV with no fans, but to complain on the radio it's different with no fans is kind of bizarre. Because you don't think the radio could be interesting under any circumstances. No, just because, like, what do you get out of the fans I, being there on the radio? Look, you don't I, know that there are no fans. There could be lots of fans. I, look, I don't know what to tell you. I, it, it could be as subtle as the fact that the announcer's energy level is down because the energy level of the whole experience is down. I can't analyze it. All I can say is that the early returns are bad. But Secret but, is out. Baseball's boring. We'll see. Well, Sadie differs with respect to hockey. She swears... That when hockey gets going, number one, it's going to work because it's in Canada. And number two, it's going to be interesting. Is that a fair summary of your position, Zane? Yeah, well, first of all, there's more on the line because it's only the postseason. It's not the whole, it's not an abbreviated season. Right. And I think it will be more interesting because than baseball because I think they're, they're you know, putting a lot of thought into how they're presenting the games. And I would imagine they're taking a lot of lessons learned from basketball right now. Um, because basketball got into their bubbles before NH the NHL has started their bubbles, so um, I think it, I think it's going to work out. All right. Well, the, the the bubbles they have two bubbles. They have one in Toronto and one in Edmonton, right? Correct. For, for the Eastern teams and the Western teams. Yep. And if something goes bad, they'll they'll put all their money in one of the bubbles, I guess. Uh, so they have that going for them. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I guess it's nice they're giving it a shot. Right. I mean, I think I, I don't watch any of the NBA vid, uh, interviews or anything, but we're fighting for a Stanley Cup right now. All right. And everybody's got their eyes on the prize. Well, there's other, one other thing about the NHL. And I, it's hard to speculate. And it's hard to know how it plays out. But a lot of uh, Major League Baseball players, a lot of NBA players are opting out for reasons which we can speculate on NHL. People are not opting out. The players are playing. I'm sure there'll be some who opt out at the end of the day, but it's just not like in the other so leagues. So there, there are some stories of players opting out, and it's not the ones that I've heard so far. And I haven't, I've, I like, I don't go on all of the um, media news sites. I'll like check the team sites, which the team sites don't always right. give all of the, you know, inside the dope. gossip about everything, but. I know some players, a lot of players, you know, have young families and they're expecting children during this period of time. So some players have said, my wife is expecting a child on this date. I will leave the bubble at this time and I will hopefully be back in the bubble at this right. time. 
So that's what I've heard so far. But I haven't heard really of anyone saying, I'm going to sit this whole thing out because of the, because of like right. health reasons. And we can speculate. Uh, one reason could be that NBA players make three times as much on the average as I NHL think players. It, I think that's a BS reason. Okay. Uh, all right. Maybe because not. Once you make several million dollars, like. You know something? I think when you're <laughs> in that span, when you're making two million, the other guy's making seven, believe it or not, it makes a difference. But I don't know. Look, I don't know. We shall see. It'll be all interesting to I see. I mean, what I happens. do think I think I have heard there are a couple people that are coming up on their free agency and have said they're going to sit it out so they don't get injured before they get. Well, that's that's their getting deal. there. That's getting there. And to be honest, when you ask the other people who have said who decided to continue playing and they're in that same position, they say, "I mean, like I play every game. I'm not, you know, when I go into a game, I can't just worry about getting hurt. You know, yeah. I just have to play the game. Well, you know something, that's it'll... interesting you say that, because I heard an interview with a guy who was a football player the other day. They're looking forward to the NFL season. And they said, if, if you were playing, uh, this guy named uh, uh, Tucker, is his last name, Ross Tucker, and he's a commentator on ESPN, they said, if you were playing, would you now, if you were a current player, would you be playing in a season, even if there was some risk of COVID? He says, absolutely. They say, why do you say that? He says, because I was like your average player. Your average player has a span of six years, let's say, in the NFL. I always made the minimum salary. I have six years to make money in my entire lifetime. Every year has to count. All right? Of course I'm playing. Uh, those guys are playing. Uh, and uh, the guys in the stratosphere are making the $7 million less but so. But also, you can get injured and, oh, yes. at any point in time. Right. And that's, that's what he said. Let me just, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's exactly his point. He said, you know something? When I played football, I would, I, I'm a religious man. I would have a prayer before every game. Uppermost in my mind is I don't want to get injured. I don't want to get badly injured. I understand that COVID's a risk. It's not the kind of risk that there is of getting a serious injury in an NFL game. No, but they're saying, they're not saying that we don't want to play because we might get COVID during this period when we go to the bubble. They're yeah. saying, I don't want to put, I don't want to get injured during this period of right. time before... Right. Like, I don't want to get knocked out in this sequence, and that puts my contract at risk. Exactly. But they're, they're worried about injury, injury, in a way, in the traditional injury, as much or more than they're worried about COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, which puts it in perspective, because, when, again, that was a football player I was talking about, and those guys really put their health on the line. But what I find is interesting is there's a lot of speculation on how the break in play ha will affect how the teams come back. Well, that will be tough. Like, will they be more organized because they've had a time to go through their systems more at this point? Usually they're coming off a really long, arduous season and they're getting into the playoffs. They're kind of broken down. They've got some new people on the team from the trade deadline. There's a lot of different variables. Right now, They've had four months to have video calls about what their systems are about. They've been talking about on the caps. Two players are were new to the team in late February uh, on the trade deadline, and they're saying those two players have now had this tremendous opportunity to learn all the systems really well and be really prepared going into the playoffs, which, which they weren't really at that spot oh. in March when they paused. Well, that will work out for them, maybe. I mean, um, all right. So uh, museum update, Tamsin. Museum update. Slash shopping tip. Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, lots of places museums are not uh, reopened yet, uh, especially in our area. But in Europe, they're reopening. And guess what? what? Guess what is the big souvenir item at these museums? I can't guess. Masks. 
What okay. a surprise. What a, well, I mean, you know, I think it's smart of the museums to try to capitalize on this mm -hmm. and it's a way to get uh, unique and interesting masks to wear. You know, you have uh, like, um, you know, in Austria, you have museums with Klimt designs. You have the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam with Rembrandt. Okay, you have Monet showing up, uh, I think, at the Metropolitan, um, Van Gogh's Sunflowers at the National Gallery in London. So something to look for. If you're looking for a unique uh, coronavirus souvenir, yeah. Okay, and if you want to support museums, well, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure the, the price of it, rate. the price of it provides I mean, how many times support? are you just stuck there in the museum, wandering around that gift shop? I want to contribute. I want to help this museum, uh, but I don't need another postcard. How about a mask? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I end up in the <laughs> in the gift uh, the gift shop. It's usually like, oh, mom is taking another lap. Let me look at the things that I can buy. Yeah. Right, exactly right. Listen, I believe uh, in supporting museums, and uh, I enjoy spending money in gift shops, okay? So <laughs> shoot me. It's, it's a win-win. You're the ideal museum patron. There's no question about it. And uh, next I have a... Um, an obituary. An obituary. Joanna Cole, who imagined fantastical educational bus rides dies at 75. She was responsible with Bruce Deegan, the illustrator, for the Magic School Bus series. Sadie, you remember these, right? Yes, I always count Miss Frizzle as one of my style icons. Well, that's interesting you should say that. So it, for those who aren't familiar, they were uh, books... Uh, I don't that... think there are any of those people. Well... <laughs> Anyway, um, Joanna Cole was a master at uh, explaining science in an entertaining, engaging, but accurate way in these books where Ms. Frizzle, the teacher, would take the students on some kind of crazy uh, field trip. Uh, their bus would, you know, morph into some amazing thing like a bug itself. Uh, and uh, they would learn all about bugs. Or a submarine. Uh, yeah, or yeah, an yeah. airplane. And she had wild outfits, frizzy hair, and usually had pretty amazing earrings on. Yeah, usually matching jewelry and matching shoes, for sure. You know, so if they were studying bugs, they would be bug jewelry. If it was dinosaurs, be dinosaur earrings, etc. And I have to say that uh, one of the nicest compliments I ever got in my class teaching art history from uh, one uh, um, term's mighty back row. You know, the back row characters are always interesting. Uh, they said... Uh, uh, a group of them said, you know, you remind us of Miss Frizzle. <laughs> and I felt good for the I rest of the day. I think we can both see that. Did you, can you see that, Sadie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, <laughs> I wonder, though, if you could even take this deeper. And I don't have, uh, I'm not watching a lot of children's programming these days, but on the rare occasion that I do watch children's programming, there seem to be several shows that pop up that you could say are strongly derived from the Magic School Bus. Not necessarily a teacher teaching a class, but... Um, you know, groups going out on kind of like the mission of the week or whatever it is, yeah. learning about a specific thing. And you can see that it's very similar to the structure of the Magic School Bus. Engaging, entertaining, but again, accurate way. And uh, one of the, uh, 
and did I already say that it's the illustrator who is really responsible for developing that uh, iconic character? And uh, people would ask Joanna Cole, are you anything like Ms. Frizzle? And she says, oh, no, 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 no. You know, um, I really pretty much hate adventure, hate anything new, um, hate change. I love science. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, that's another great example that you don't necessarily have to, um, you know, that all these things are not autobiographical, that uh, you can step out of yourself to uh, create something uh, new and uh, important. I mean, I think it also speaks to the concept that she knew how to access people that wasn't necessarily an extension of her own personality, but this is an effective way to reach people. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not just her being such a great, big, amazing personality. It's, I know the tools to get this into people's minds, and it is by making this character and making it accessible yeah. to right. people. So it's, she had, it was a deliberate choice on her part. It was right. something mm -hmm. she had to decide upon. And it was a collaboration. She worked very closely with the illustrator. Right. They, they were saying that in many children's books, the illustrators and the um, writers never even meet. Mm -hmm. They just get the text and fill it out. These people really worked together and made something pretty... Uh, magical, shall we say. All right. Well, uh, so our last story, you know, as, as inevitably is the case when you do these things, sometimes two of the three of us are more into it, uh, sometimes one of the three, sometimes none of the three, but uh, this one, all three. Uh, it's an article about uh, Southside Johnny. And, we're and all, the Asbury Jukes. And the Asbury Jukes. Sorry, I don't want to leave the Jukes out. I, uh, I got to say that many times when we've been at Block Island, we've been... In the background, Southside Johnny is playing very loud. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I hardly oh, yeah. That's that. part of the soundtrack of our summer vacation. Is that right? Absolutely. We always play Southside on the and, and once we had somebody visiting and they said, can you turn that down? And we were horrified. Is that right? Horrified. Well, you know, South I feel differently about those people now. I don't remember who that is, but you can tell me offline. <laughs> um, but I have thought before, like, how much money would it cost for him to play my wedding? That's how much we, <laughs> we love. Him. Yes. Oh, you you uh, you you're trying to tell us something? Is that what's going on? Well, here? if you wanted to plan my wedding now, I would put him in uh, the budget. This we'll talk about this offline also. Um, yes, uh, and also, oh, I don't want to miss this. We're on Block Island, Southside Johnny. Almost, I think an annual concert by Southside Johnny yeah. on Block I Island say, on the lawn at the Springhouse, which we've never managed to yeah. be here. For I think that. he stopped almost about ten years ago. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, that's just like because I remember I used to look it up, and he had stopped coming at a certain point, but he does still tour regularly, as we know. Well, but he was usually playing the day after we left. That would be it. Yeah. And, it would, and it was so horrible, so easy for us to go to the spring house to see it. But in any event, so what's the article about? Because no one's doing any concerts now. Well, not so fast. It turns out that Southside Johnny uh, gave a concert at uh, Monmouth Park, which is basically a racetrack uh, site uh, in New Jersey. I mean, just he, begs the question, where were you? Uh, you know, it was like last Saturday night. If I had known about it, would we have gone? I don't think so. It, the way it worked was you you stayed in your car. You drive up to a car, and you have a big parking lot, and you open the window, and Southside Johnny's on a stage in front of all these parked cars, and he's uh, singing. And apparently, if you're far enough away, and some people were far enough away, they had a low-band uh, FM station that you could tune to and listen to it there. Um, it sounds like it... Not too exciting, not too interesting. But the fellow who wrote the article, a guy named uh, Nick Corosini Coruscant, for uh, the New York Times, uh, loved it. 
Uh, he interviewed some Southside Johnny fans who's been to 100 concerts of his. They were skeptical too. But once Southside Johnny got going, um, then uh, all bets were off. Uh, people really enjoyed it. Uh, they said they were honking their horn uh, to, uh, to what song was that? Uh, to Talk to Me, you know, that song. The uh, writer was saying he was tapping his uh, steering wheel to the great song, I Don't Want to Go Home. Uh, and in fact, uh, there was a sing-along. People opened their windows and sang out loud to love on the wrong side of town. I, these are all Southside Johnny classics. Uh, and uh, the writer was very excited, and he made an interesting observation at the end of the article, uh, quoting Bruce Springsteen, who said, People don't come to rock shows to learn something. They come to be reminded of something they already know and feel deep down in their gut. So uh, this has been something that... Is not Salsa Johnny? Surprise, surprise! Is not the only person that's doing this right now. This right. has been doing. This is being done across the country. But I think this goes back to the sports thing a little bit. You're kind of skeptical of you know what's the point of going. The point of going is there's nothing to do right now. Let's try something. <laughs> well, even if it's not the most enchanting thing we've ever done in our lives. Let's spend an evening doing this, because otherwise <laughs> we'd spend an evening watching Netflix. Well, so you, you are making the same point Nick makes in his article, and here's the way he ends it. He says, as that first searing guitar note from Southside Johnny pierced the night sky, I felt that familiar pang in my gut. I don't want to go home. Exactly. <laughs> well, and you know what? I think the moral of the story today is you need to just let it go. And, you know, live life as it comes and be a little less judgmental on all of these people just trying to live, trying to make their make a buck well, and trying to get the economy back going. Words of wisdom from Sadie Avenue Huff. OK, mm -hmm. I think that's all. Dan. Yeah. All I want to say is that uh, I don't want to go home. We're in Block Island. We'll stay here. All right. So this is Tamsin Granger <laughs> and Dan Abu Huff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper with, she, with and with Sadie. <laughs> <laughs> See you again next week, we hope. Maybe still from Block Island. <laughs>